section sixteen of seven roman statesmen of the later republic by charles oman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter six crassus part four we have on the whole extraordinarily little recorded of the doings of crassus between b c fifty nine and b c fifty six a time when he ought to have been able to ask and obtain whatever he chose from his colleagues he had his share no doubt in the management of affairs by the triumvirs in that rather chaotic time when to the outward eye clodius rather than any one else seemed to be the real ruler of rome but apparently he was as usual more set on checking pompey than on anything else it is only in b c fifty six that he again comes to the front by that time he had at last learnt from the study of caesar's doings in gaul that any man who aspired to take his share in dominating roman politics must have an army at his back hence it was that at the conference of lucca he claimed not only the consulship for b c fifty five but the command of the army of the east he too must raise his legions win his victories and be in a position to meet caesar and pompey on equal terms if troubles should ever again break out those superficial writers who think that he chose the rich eastern provinces out of mere greed and avarice are clearly wrong all through his life money-making was to him the means and not the end what he really wanted to secure was a loyal army not a few more millions to add to his hordes that military glory had turned his brain and that he desired to emulate alexander the great and to penetrate to the bactrians the indians and the erythrian sea so that in his hopes he swallowed up the whole east we cannot readily believe clearly he wished to win a strong military position such as could be secured by great conquests beyond the euphrates but it was needed mainly to help him sway the balance between caesar and pompey in the domestic affairs of rome nevertheless when he had once been granted his desire and placed in command of an army his spirit seemed to have risen his mind harked back to his old campaigns of eighty two and seventy one b c and he appears to have cast from him the memories of twenty years of finance and intrigue and to have tried to become once more the enterprising soldier that he had been in sulla's day he showed a buoyancy of spirit that surprised every one indulging in vain boasts most inconsistent with his wonted demeanour and most unsuitable to his age and disposition for in general he was far from being either self-assertive or conceited but now he said he would make the expedition of lucullus against tigranes and that of pompey against mithridates appear mere child's play yet he now counted sixty years and looked even older than he really was the renewal of the triumvirate had so cowed the optimate party that even cato had to give up his attempt to struggle against the omnipotent three it is therefore all the more curious to find that one man set himself to oppose crassus's designs and that from mere personal enmity this abnormal personage was the tribune gaius ateius capito one of those strange characters who move for an instant across the political stage and are then lost in obscurity he ventured to place a veto on the levying of legions for crassus it was quietly disregarded 
then he announced awful hindrances of portents and prodigies which were also met with derision rather than attention indeed he was fined by the censor appius for fabricating false omens but he reserved his great coup for the day on which crassus passed out of the gates to take command of his army after one final and futile attempt to interpose his tribunitial veto he took refuge in strange incantations he placed a censer at the gate we are told and threw incense upon it uttering the most horrid imprecations and invoking strange and dreadful deities the romans say that these mysterious and ancient curses have such power that the man against whom they are directed never escapes ill luck nay more they add that the person who uses them is sure to bring misfortune on himself too undaunted by these antiquated rites and regardless of two or three other evil presages which plutarch has carefully collected crassus set forth from italy and arrived safely in syria where he found himself at the head of an army of seven legions his first act on taking charge of his province was to plunder ruthlessly the temples of hierapolis emessa and jerusalem and to scrape together all the money that could be raised by taxation but he was no doubt set on filling his military chest for a war that was certain to prove long and costly rather than on gratifying the talent for extortion that was such a marked characteristic of all his life his first strategical move was to bridge the euphrates and to establish a new base for himself in the greek cities of mesopotamia this was easily accomplished but his second advance was a much more serious matter he had now to prove whether his old martial reputation won in wars against carbo and pontius and spartacus had been fairly earned quite unconsciously crassus was going forth to solve a new and difficult military problem unlike caesar in gaul he had not to deal with an old enemy whose strength and tactics were well known the romans had met and defeated many an asiatic army during the last century but the parthians were not like the other inhabitants of the hellenized east whom scipio or sulla or pompey had so easily subdued their hosts did not consist of clumsy imitation of the macedonian phalanx but of masses of horse bowmen some were the lightest of light cavalry others bore helm and lance and breastplate as well as the national bow of infantry the parthians had none save levies raised among their subject races for operations in mountainous regions when the fight was to be in the plains they did not take a single foot-soldier with them of all the regions of the border mesopotamia into which crassus was now advancing was most suitable for the tactics of the enemy the battles would be fought among rolling sandy downs destitute of trees and crossed by rivers at very unfrequent intervals confident in his seven legions and his four thousand horse the triumvir marched out from cari and entered the desolate lands that lay between his base and the parthian capital he had resolved to take the shortest route to seleucia in spite of the advice of the armenian allies who had endeavoured to induce him to draw near to the tigris and the assyrian mountains instead of plunging into the mesopotamian sands where the parthians could use their horsemen to the best advantage tradition tells us that he had been influenced in his resolve 
by the treacherous advice of an arab sheik named ariamnis or abgaris who had told him that speed was the essential thing in his advance for as he alleged the parthian king was not intending to fight so near the roman frontier and was sending his treasures eastward and preparing to evacuate seleucia without any serious attempt to make a stand if crassus was gulled by these stories he was soon undeceived for on the second day of his march his vedettes were driven in by the parthian horse and reported that the vizier serena was close at hand with a mighty host eager to engage the triumvir pressed on to meet the enemy in full expectation of a victory that should eclipse all that pompey had ever accomplished in the east at first he drew up his men on a very long front the legions deployed in line with the cavalry in equal halves at each end of the array but presently it struck him that this formation did not sufficiently cover his enormous baggage train which was trailing along for many miles to the rear accordingly he changed his order to a great hollow square and placed all his impedimenta in the centre this would have been an excellent battle formation had he been about to contend with an enemy who deployed shock tactics and intended to charge in upon the legions but against horse archers it was a mistake it gave them a target which it would be impossible to miss and at the same time made it hard for the romans to charge without breaking their order of battle the square is an essentially defensive formation and useless against a light and evasive foe that has no wish to close when the parthians appeared at first in comparatively small numbers but afterwards in huge hordes that seemed to cover the whole horizon crassus in the usual roman style sent out his light troops to skirmish but his slingers and archers were but a few thousand strong after a short combat they were flung back upon the legions with heavy loss absolutely overwhelmed by the concentric arrow shower which was poured in upon them the pursuing enemy then began to ride close up to the great square and to take easy shots into the mass they kept at a discreet distance some two hundred yards or so and the legionnaires were helpless against them for the pilum had but a short range and could not reach the horsemen nor was it any use to advance for the enemy slowly retired keeping always at the same distance from the legions and continuing to pour in his long deadly shafts which nailed the shield to the arm that bore it and the helmet to the head crassus now began to see the difficulties of the situation since it was impossible to contend with missile weapons against the parthians it was necessary to close at all costs accordingly he gave his son publius charge of thirteen hundred cavalry all gallic veterans fresh from caesar's wars fifteen hundred archers and eight picked cohorts of infantry and bade him sally out from the square and charge desperately into the enclosing ring of bowmen before this sudden onset the parthians gave way retiring at full speed leaving a moment's respite to the harassed legions young crassus pursued them fiercely his infantry pushing forward so rapidly that it almost kept pace with the horsemen apparently the young commander allowed himself to be carried away by the ardour of the charge and entertained a vain hope of catching up the enemy for he chased them for five or six miles till he had got quite out of touch with his father's legions 
then he suddenly found himself face to face with the solid supports of the elusive horse bowmen heavy squadrons of mailed lancers who met him in orderly array and offered battle at the same moment the fugitives whom he had been chasing halted and began to ply their bows from the flanks although his troops were much disordered by their long and reckless ride publius charged straight at the centre of the enemy a furious melee followed but the romans were hopelessly outnumbered and after a most gallant defence the whole detachment horse and foot was exterminated the triumvir advancing slowly in his son's track was horrified to meet the parthians returning with shouts of triumph and displaying the heads of publius and the other fallen officers fixed on their pikes but with a resolution which shows that the old roman spirit was not dead in him he addressed his men crying that the loss of his son was his own private concern and that the main army was intact and might yet retrieve the day and avenge their fallen comrades no campaign could be carried to a successful end without some casualties it was not by her good fortune but by her perseverance and fortitude in adversity that rome had risen to be the mistress of the world these words were not enough to stir the weary soldiery who had thoroughly lost heart and were already cursing the general who had led them into this snare in the desert it was his ignorance and presumption they complained which were the causes of their present desperate condition they held out sullenly till dusk came but when the fall of night compelled the parthians to withdraw the whole army officers and soldiers alike demanded to be led back to the euphrates a deputation went to seek for the proconsul who was found stretched on the ground with his head wrapped in his cloak mourning for his son since he seemed sunk in a dull apathy and refused to issue any orders the quaestor for crassus took it upon himself to bid the army decamp under cover of the night and make a forced march for Cari. the baggage and four thousand wounded were left to the mercy of the enemy a night retreat is always fatal to troops who have lost their nerve and the romans dropping with fatigue and wearied by twelve hours spent under arms had no longer the power to move rapidly or to keep their distances when day broke they were found straggling across the plains in half a dozen disjointed columns each of which had to shift for itself the parthians came up a few hours later and beset the retreating army some of the more belated corps and multitudes of the stragglers were cut up but the main body reached cari in the afternoon next night crassus again commenced to retreat for his troops were so demoralized that he felt sure that it was hopeless to make any stand east of the euphrates the second day of flight was as disastrous as the first the troops lost all touch with each other and the greater part of the horse leaving the infantry in the lurch never drew rein till they had saved themselves in the mountains crassus himself with only four cohorts in his company was worried all day by a swarm of horse bowmen who succeeded in intercepting his way to the hills and finally compelled him to halt and stand at bay on an isolated eminence just outside the limit of safety then followed a miserable scene of treachery the parthian vizier came up and seeing that it would be hard to storm the hill proposed a conference holding out prospects of granting a peace on condition that crassus 
should order the evacuation of the mesopotamian cities and retire beyond the euphrates the soldiery hailed with joy a proposal that promised a relief from their present desperate condition but the triumvir himself was not deluded and warned all those about him that the only safe course was to hold out till night and then make a dash for the hills through the lines of the enemy his exhortations produced little effect and seeing that his men were utterly demoralized and unwilling to fight any longer he consented to go down and treat it is said that he took his officers to witness that he went to his death with his eyes open but that for the credit of rome it would be better to say that the general was deceived by the enemy rather than that he had been abandoned by his own men the sequel was exactly like the scene at kabul in eighteen forty one when the unfortunate macnaughton went down to treat with akbar khan crassus and his escort were received at first with ostentatious respect and a conference was begun presently a feigned scuffle was got up and hands were laid upon the proconsul whereupon one of his legates drew his sword this acted as the necessary signal for open violence and serena's attendants fell upon the romans and dispatched them every one crassus's head was cut off and sent to seleucia to be laid before the great king every one has read of the scene that followed the arrival of the ghastly trophy a scene that illustrates accurately enough the curious admixture of savagery and civilization at the court of the arsacidae king Herodes was witnessing the bacchae of euripides wherein king pentheus is torn to pieces by the frantic theban women the actor who was playing agave seized the head of crassus and used it instead of the mask that represented the head of pentheus in the wild dance at the end of the play Herodes was charmed with the idea and presented the tragedian with a talent of silver we must not blame crassus too much for the disaster of Cari probably any other roman general of the day with the possible exception of caesar would have suffered a defeat under the same circumstances for the parthian method of war was utterly unknown to the romans and the legion a splendid weapon against any other foe was useless here in later campaigns profiting by crassus's experience the generals of the west never attempted to attack the parthian in the open with an army of the old roman type they took into the field large bodies of cavalry and tens of thousands of foot archers these last proved especially successful against the troops of the arsacidae for the parthian bow having to be used on horseback was necessarily short and was outranged by that of the foot soldier hence the orientals had the choice between being overmatched in archery and being forced to charge home in both cases they usually fared ill when engaging with the romans there never was a second cari but it is hard to see how the first could have been avoided it was a strange and inappropriate end to the life of crassus that he should go down to history with his name attached to an error in military tactics rather than to some political or financial fiasco but a certain inevitable futility attached to all that he undertook he wanted power and thrice in his life the power was placed within his hand but when he had it he could not use it for he was equally destitute of an ideal and of a programme even if pompey had not always been at his side to check his ambition we see 
that he would never have achieved anything great the story of his career shows just how much and how little mere wealth ambition and industry without genius an inspiring personality or an honest enthusiasm could accomplish in roman politics End of section 16.